0: Well, the book of Ruth is a very familiar book for many, I'm sure. It is a fun book to dig into as we see the beauty of redemption, for it is a story of redemption. And this morning we're going to be looking at Ruth 1 and seeing how we can respond redemptively in life. One of the things that uh, I I quickly discovered as I studied the book of Ruth for my Hebrew class is that there is so much nuance in the book that you miss just reading in English. That as you go into the the Hebrew words of meaning of names and the ironic nature of the author's writing to point out specific things, there's so much more in the book of Ruth than we could ever imagine. And so we're going to do our best as we walk through Ruth for the next four weeks to unpack and and display what God has for us. Before we jump into that, I want to share with you a story of when I was younger And usually younger me was kind of a a funny kid. If you imagine Liam, that was me, right? If you see Liam running around, he's kind of a goofball. That was me as a kid. And my brother and I, we had just recently got BB guns for Christmas and our birthday. And it was summertime when we could go out and shoot things like squirrels or each other. And so we decided that we were going to have a duel, right? American history is full of duels. You know, Hamilton himself had a duel. And so we're like, we, we want to join in history, like the old Western stories, and have a BB gun duel. But my older brother, being 12, I was 9 at the time, he made the rules. He said, okay, here's the deal. If we're going to shoot one another, we have to do the 10 paces, count to 10. But we have pumped BB guns, and we need to only pump them three times. Three times won't really hurt, okay, okay, Marvin? I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's great, Jason, that's great. Now, he's my older brother, right? If you're a younger brother, you know a couple of things. First, your older brothers rarely follow the rules that they make up. And second, it's probably going to hurt because he's going to change his pump number. So I figure my brother said the rule is three. He's probably going to pump it five times, so I'm going to go two above his Seven. I pump, I had a handgun, he had a rifle, so I pumped my gun up seven times. And it, it was supposed to be ten paces. And I'm thinking, my brother's going to turn it nine, so I'm going to turn it eight. Right? So we get our backs together. I, I secretly pump it up seven times. Did you pump it three times, Marvin? Oh, yeah, yeah, three times. So then we do our ten. One, two, I turn it eight, and I fire. Thinking that he was going to be shooting at me too? No. He goes down, ah! falls on the ground, he's grabbing his right cheek and he's screaming on the ground and he's like, how many times did you pump it up? And here's the time of honesty, right? I said seven times. He said, what, what did you turn at? I said eight. So he's on the floor and I realized that he was wearing jeans that went through his jeans and right into his flesh. And at that moment, my brother, as an older brother, I was anticipating this screaming, yelling, punching, wrestling me to the ground. He was a redemptive person in that moment. And he said, let's go home and tell mom what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it was, he didn't yell and scream and punch me, but we had to go home and I confessed. I shot my brother and he's bleeding, and that she had to take tweezers and get the thing out of his body, right? It was one of those moments in life where I could have gotten pummeled, but I was not. My brother, he responded pretty redemptively. I didn't even get grounded. Which was phenomenal, right? Was all of you moms are like, "Why didn't you get grounded?" He advocated for me because he said it was his idea. See, my brother was really good in this moment. He's a great big brother. I love him, right? And and I share that story because you know, in life, you and I, we often have BBs shot at us. We have these times in life where things are rough. Where things are not easy, where we have pain and sorrow and suffering and adversity that comes against us. And it's like the enemy and the world and life are just shooting BBs at us and we're not yet prepared. But we must respond in a way that is redemptive. As, as believers, we have an opportunity because we have the Holy Spirit living within us to respond in a redemptive way rather than an unredemptive way. When life throws BBs, we can respond redemptively. And how we respond really does show who we rely on. Because our responses in life reveal who we rely on. If adversity comes, do you rely on your money to help you through that pain? If you are, adversity comes, you're relying upon yourself to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and make it work in your own will and in your own way. How we respond in life really does show who we rely on. So the question as we come to the book of Ruth chapter 1 is, how in life can we respond redemptively? Now you think, that you read Ruth 1, you're like, how in the world... How do you get that idea of responding redemptively? The idea of redemption comes in later, right? Well, the whole story is a story of redemption. The whole thing, not just the kinsman redeemer that we will see, but the entire story is a story of redemption. And so we're going to read the entire chapter of Ruth 1, right? I, I time myself. It's about three minutes, okay? But it's important for us to grasp the whole picture of Ruth 1. And I'll try and do the right emphases, because as you read this, you don't really know what the Hebraic words are. You don't know where the emphases should be. So I'm going to do my very best so that you can understand what's going on in this story and why it is a lesson in how to respond redemptively. So Ruth chapter 1. I'm reading from the ESV, so if it's a little bit different, that's why. We also have it on the screen, those of you who are at home uh, and those of you who are here Or you can open up your your scripture. Or if you want to, you can just soak in the story so that you can hear what's going on. Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Shilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there for about ten years, and both Malon and Shilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me, with, with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. a beginning to a story, quite an opening to a struggle of an entire family. You have to understand the context of this moment as well. In the day of the judges is when this transpired. So as we see the book of Judges ends, the book of Ruth begins. But at the tail end of the judges, while they were ruling, this story transpired. But look at how Judges ends. Judges 21-25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The judges in the book, you will see, were good and then bad. There was following God and then there was utter destruction for the Israelites. It was an up and down time. And things were okay for a time and then things were really, really bad. Bad. They were in the midst of absolute rebellion at the time that Ruth's story transpires. I like to say Ruth is a story of redemption all while surrounded by reckless rebellion. And so this is why many people believe that as you look at Scripture, God promised famine. God promised bad things would happen to the Israelites if they did not follow God. And here we see in Bethlehem there was in fact a famine. As we look at the story of Ruth and Naomi in Ruth 1, the question just is there, how do we in life respond redemptively? Because I believe, and I will show you that Naomi did not respond redemptively. In the story of Ruth, the first key to responding redemptively is running. A redemptive response is one that runs to the Redeemer. A redemptive response is one that runs to the Redeemer. Now let's look at this story as it plays out a little bit. It makes sort of sense, some sense when you see that there's a famine in a particular portion of the land and you look across the sea 50 miles away to a place called Moab that does not have a famine. It makes sense then that a family like Elimelech's would pick up and leave Bethlehem and move to Moab in order to get food to take care of their family. But what's funny and interesting about this story is the author consistently points out things that are ironic. And the thing that's ironic here is that Elimelech, the father, the leader of this group, is going from Bethlehem, which in Hebrew is pronounced Bethlehem, and it means house of bread. He's leaving the place where bread is promised and going to a place where he's not supposed to go. The Moabites were looked down upon. The Moabites were frowned upon. The Moabites were not people that you were supposed to turn to in times of need. They were supposed to turn to the Lord. The call with famine and all of the bad things that were going on in the midst of the judges was to get the Israelites to return and run back to their God. And run back to the king that was God on the throne. And we see that they didn't want God on the throne. They were clamoring for a king much later, right after the book of Ruth. We see that in 1 Samuel. It's a sandwich in between those spaces. And we'll see in three weeks why that is. But Elimelech's name means God is king or God is my king. The author is purposely pointing out their names most of the time, you wouldn't look at all the names that are right there in that passage. You just focus on the main characters. But here, the author, led by the Holy Spirit, is purposely trying to point out the irony that happens in this story. A guy who's named, my God, is King, is going to a place he's not supposed to go to, out of the house of bread, to find food. And so automatically, as the Hebrews are reading this, understanding the language, they're probably thinking, wow, this guy is totally off base. Why would he be going to the Moabites? The Moabite women were not liked either. They were the ones who led Israelites astray with their bodies, and and they fell into sexual sin with the Moabites. So the Moabites are people that you should never go spend time with, but here Elimelech takes them. Warren Wiersbe says, By going 50 miles to the neighboring land of Moab, Elimelech and his family abandoned God's land and God's people for the land and people of their enemy. Wow! Instead of going after the house of bread, returning to the Redeemer that they were supposed to return to, they went to God's enemy, left God's people, left the house of bread where they were supposed to find bread, And went to a place they weren't supposed to go to. Now the author is purposeful in the way he explains this. He utilizes phrases often where he will use words over and over and over again. Here's an allusion to Genesis 12. And so we know that Elimelech and his family are doing the wrong thing by going to Moab. Because in Genesis 12, God rebukes Abraham for his mistrust of God's care. Here, Elimelech and his family do the same thing. But I want to show you a quick video in a moment about the the irony, again, of what the author is trying to point out. In these 21 verses, he points out specific words for a purpose. So watch this really quick drawing video like I promised you have another one. Beautiful. Hopefully you caught that last part. The author in this short portion of Scripture names Moab five times, and he calls Ruth the Moabite twice. He is pointing the Hebrew people to the fact that this family chose Moab and a Moabite woman. It's purposeful. He's in a way shaming Elimelech for his decision to move over. The author is purposely pointing these things out to get your mindset to recognize that what they did was wrong. Their response to the famine was wrong. They were not called to go to the enemy's camp. They were called to turn back to the Father. When trouble comes to our lives, Warren Wiersbe says, we can endure it, escape it, or enlist it. When trouble comes to our lives we can endure it, escape it, or enlist it. And when we enlist our troubles, he's reflecting back to the idea of Romans eight twenty eight, where God can turn those issues for good, that he can use those painful BBs that get shot at us to turn us back to the Father. As we see in the book of Judges, the point of all of that famine and all of that pain was to get them to see, wow, we are not worshiping God. We're falling away and not running to the right thing. They were not enlisting it. Elimelech and his family, they were trying to run from the famine, trying to run from the judgment. They were trying to leave the house of bread and go into a place they were not supposed to go. They should have enlisted that painful time to turn back and call the Israelites back but instead they tried to run away they tried to escape and sometimes as believers we can say oh this time is tough but I'm going to endure it but we don't invite the Holy Spirit into the process we just try to do it on our own we try to escape it I'm gonna run away from that this is too painful it's too hard excuse me I got to run away from that job I got to run away from that spouse I got to run away from that church or I got to run away from that group of friends but should be enlisted in order to grow us and strengthen us as people as we see how we are to respond redemptively. Elimelech and his family ran away when they should have ran to their Redeemer. In the story of Ruth, the second key to responding redemptively is confession. A redemptive response resolves to take responsibility when necessary. When necessary, taking responsibility. Where do I gather that? This is one of the most impactful things as I was studying the book of Ruth in my class on Hebrew to get this picture of what was happening with Ruth and her daughters-in-law. So Ruth decides, I'm going to pick up, I'm going to leave. I heard as I was in the fields of Moab that God has now brought food back to the house of bread. And so we're going to go back to that land. I am going to go back. I have nothing left. My husband and my sons are dead. I have nothing left in this terrible land of Moab. I'm going back home. So she resolves to go. And as her daughters-in-law see this, they're like, Well, we have nothing here either. We should go with you. And as they begin to go, she has conversations with them, which we saw. And I hopefully uh, came across properly with the emphatic nature of her conversation with these ladies. As they're following her, she's like, she, she realizes, I don't want them with me. I want them to go away. I want them to go back to where they need to go. They, they have a life that they can figure out. They can find a way in Moab to make it work. I don't want them with me. And so she begins to have a very serious conversation with them. And she says, you need to go. She tries off gently a little bit, right? Is sometimes when we're trying to get people to leave us alone, we might start off gently. She's like, "Hey, you guys should go back. You know, you can find you're, you're beautiful young women. You can go find husbands. Go back to your gods. Worship, worship your gods. You're you're not kind of like you're not like me, and all the people are like me there. So it, just just stay away from us. You just go back to your own people. Well, and they get a little bit upset. Like, no, we have we're in the same situation. Our husbands are dead. We have no children. We have nothing." And you brought us into your family. Like, they, they might even be shunned by other Moabites because now they married Jewish men. So they're like, we, no, we're going with you. And then Naomi pushes the gas really hard on trying to push them away. She starts saying, Man, I, I, I'm old. I'm never going to have another son. And even if I did, you wouldn't wait around because you're going to be like 35 and not be able to have babies anymore. Back then, 35 was old. Okay? Just, just saying. You're not going to be able to have any children of your own because you're going to be waiting for this, this old, you're going to be old. No, don't do it. Leave. Go away. Leave me alone. I'm going by myself. And Orpah, not Oprah, by the way. <laughs> so many people call her Oprah. I don't understand why. It's Orpah, right? Orpah's like, oh, you know what? You make really good sense. I might not have another chance. So she leaves, but Ruth clings to her says, nope, I'm not going, I'm not leaving, I am not going to leave, but here's the question that we have to ask, why would Naomi push them away? This is their own, her only family left, they were there for 10 years, we don't know how long Malon and Chilion were married to Orpa and Ruth But it was probably more than three or four years after Elimelech died. He died early on after they got there. And then she was left alone and and said, well, we need to find wives for you guys because we have nothing left. You need to go find wives. And they found Orpah and Ruth. So she has family. This is all that she has left. And she's shoving them away. You have to ask the question, why would she do that? Well, Let's go back to the constant theme of Moab and Moabite. Why are those important to the story? Because Moab and the Moabites were not loved, liked people. They were not people that the Jews should have been with. So here, her, her sons, she allowed her sons to marry Moabite women. The only way that that could be known by the people she was going back to is if those girls were with her. They would come and say, oh, who's this Moabite woman with you? She's like, well, I, I let my sons marry them. And then she would be shunned, possibly. She'd be looked down upon. Ruth might not find a place where people would want to be with her. And this is key for us to understand the idea of Ruth and her lineage. A commentator block said this her comments offer no hint of human causation behind her tragedies instead of repenting of her own and her people's her own people's sin she accuses god of injustice toward her in her conversation with these two ladies she's blaming it on god saying i want you to go away because god is against me i didn't do anything wrong but i want you to leave so that when i go home no one knows i did something wrong She's trying to conceal what happened, and she's blaming it all on God to her Moabite daughters-in-law. And here's the thing that really, really is pointed out by this author. She says twice, go back to your gods. They were in her house. They would have learned about the one true God. They would have understood who Yahweh is. And she's pushing them away, not just from the people but trying to get them to go away from Yahweh. Orpah's like, yeah, that makes sense. Ruth was not a fan of that. But isn't it true for us as well that we often seek to conceal our sins when we need to confess them? It's often often the case where when we sin and there's this conviction, there's there's a, a, a desire to conceal it. Here, We see that Naomi was trying to conceal her sin. That is the only reason why she would push these ladies away. To me, that's incredible. When I saw that, when I was unpacking this in the Hebrew and looking at commentaries, that was like, I never understood that before. She's trying to hide the fact that she allowed her sons to marry Moabite women. Now, some might say she's concerned about Ruth being accepted or Orpah being accepted, which there's some validity to that. But she knows that it also affects her and her image as she goes into Judah, going back to the land of the bread. You see, this idea of concealing our sins, the enemy loves it. He wants us to not respond redemptively in our lives by concealing our sins. Where we're like, oh, well, everything's fine. I didn't do anything bad. Everything else is everyone else's fault. And here we see that Naomi blames God for everything. Now, we do see in the Psalms that when people grieve pain and anger and anxiety, when they have that in the Psalms, even from David, we see that there are times where they say it's all God's fault. But in the end of the Psalms, there's always a confession. There's always an ending of, blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord is good. Right here, Naomi doesn't get to that point. There are times in our life where pain and trial and suffering will be so real and so painful that our absolute first response is anger and shaking our fist at God. But we need to move into a place of confession. Not all bad things that happen to us are due to our sins. Some people just sin against us for no reason at all, except their own sins. But there are times where we have to look at scenarios and situations and say, you know what, maybe, maybe there's a part I had to play. God, let me know what part so that I can confess it and repent it and no longer conceal it. Naomi wanted to conceal what was going on, and she blamed God. Now, when she returns, you see at the end there, she returns to her people. In the response of her people, they're they're, they're shocked. They look at Naomi and they look at Ruth and they ask this question. They don't say, notice how they don't say a word about Ruth. They have this this automatic response as they look at Naomi and they say, Is this Naomi? In Hebrew, it's showing the, the fact that her countenance is changed. Naomi's name means cheerful and pleasant. And here this woman walks into Judah, haggard, old, depressed, bitter, angry. And they look at her and they say, that's, that's the Naomi, the pleasant, cheerful woman we knew 10 years ago? And then she responds back. She gets really angry. And she says, don't call me Naomi. Don't even think about using that name ever again. For I will never be happy. I will never be cheerful. Life is against me. God hates me. Everything is a mess. Nothing is good. Everything will always be terrible. And I hate everything about it. She's angry. She's bitter. She said, just call me bitterness. She changes her name or tries to change her name to bitterness. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. She wants to be a bitter old woman for the rest of her life. But we notice that a redemptive response rejects bitterness. If you and I are to have a redemptive response in our lives, we have to reject bitterness. Bitter, bitterness against the people that maybe shot the BB at us. Bitterness that maybe we think it's all God's fault. Bitterness even at ourselves, knowing that we are ashamed of maybe what we have done. As Naomi certainly was experiencing shame in her own life. Realizing that she had brought this calamity upon herself, but was unwilling to confess it. Unwilling to deal with it. And here we see she is embracing bitterness. And it changed her whole self. The reason why that shock happened with those ladies as they returned to Judah is what they're trying to say, the author is trying to point out, the Holy Spirit is trying to point out that bitterness affects every aspect of your life, even your physical self. You will look haggard. You will look old. You will look depressed. You will look downcast if you embrace nothing but bitterness and you tell people to call you bitterness, to rename you that, Man, that will reflect on how you look. It changes everything. God is to give us the freedom of bitterness. The Spirit of God living within us as believers, we can release it. We can be free from it. And that's what Naomi just missed. We need to reject that bitterness. Another thing we see within this portion of the narrative of Naomi talking to her daughters-in-law is that the Lord's loving kindness is available to all who look to Him. The Lord's loving kindness is available to all who look to Him. I I want you to capture another portion of what's going on in this dialogue from Naomi to these daughters-in-law. Whether by shame or depression or just the bitterness that has welled up within her, She refuses to believe that God can forgive, that God will give her his loving kindness. Or the Hebrew word here is chesed. Maybe you've heard that word before. It is one of the most difficult words to translate from Hebrew to English, chesed. Because it means so many different things. But here it's talking about the loving kindness and the forgiveness and the joy that God can bring. All of those things are wrapped up in the Hebrew word chesed. And she tells her daughters-in-law, may God give you his chesed. In the midst of her depression, in the midst of her looking that God is against me, God could never be for me, she says, you know what, you go and you worship your other gods and may God's loving kindness, may his chesed go with you. It makes no theological sense for any Jew to say that to a Moabite. She is so depressed and bitter that she thinks that God's chesed is only available for them and not available for her. You see, but it points out, the author purposely points out that God's chesed is available to those who turn back to Him. Because had Naomi in this moment decided to return to her Redeemer, she would have experienced the chesed that He had for her. But she was so blockaded by her anger, her bitterness, her shame, her frustration that she didn't believe it was possible for her to but it was possible for them. Which, this is another portion of irony, because in that time, you would never believe that God's chesed could be for anyone but a Jew. But here she believes it's available for them. Naomi believes the Lord's chesed is available for two foreign women who are seemingly far from the Lord, but is, attainable, or is unattainable or wholly unavailable for her. My friends, God's loving kindness... In, in the midst of painful life, even in the midst of normal, joyful life, God's chesed is available for all of us. We need to return to Him. Whatever's going on in your life, even if you've walked bitterness and in, in allowed bitterness in your heart and been walking in bitterness towards the Lord or to other people, you can release it and you can return to your Redeemer and allow Him to, to display his chesed for you. God loves you. Naomi will in the future see God's chesed in her life, what she thought was unavailable, unattainable, wholly rejected from her. She will see that God had a different plan. And what's really funny about this author, if you read through the scriptures, she demands that everyone call her Mara. But no one, not a single person, not even the author, calls her Mara, ever. They never allow her name to be renamed. She remains throughout the story from the author and from her friends, Naomi. Naomi. There is a picture of responding redemptively that we have in this story. The third and final key to responding redemptively is faith. Responding with radical faith epitomizes the redemptive response. We're going to take you back to the response that Ruth now has to this scenario. Remember, Everything that Naomi is going through, Ruth is experiencing as well. We look at this story and we feel bad for for Naomi because she's the one who's saying, everything's bad, everything's terrible, I lost everything. But here, Ruth lost her husband, her father-in-law, she's losing her house Because they would have had the house together as a family. Naomi's like, I'm selling it. You have no choice. I'm going. I'm leaving. I'm just gone. So she's losing her house. She lost her husband. She has no future because she does not have a child. There is no hope for her either. We missed that point. But the author is purposely trying to show us the reality of Ruth's life as well as Naomi's. Naomi's in the same situation. And here, she has this dialogue with Naomi. And Naomi, for the second time, then goes on that tirade about how she can never have babies again, and so they need to leave, and leave her alone so that she can go alone to Judah. And here, Ruth, even after Orpah left, she's like, see you're Orpah left, you need to leave too. Ruth responds, do not urge me to leave. If you were to look at that in the Hebrew, here's essentially what she's saying how dare you send me away i'm all in with you naomi i desire to worship your god i desire to seal our fates together that do not urge me is looking at naomi in the face and saying how dare you how dare you do that to me it's pretty intense ruth isn't this soft spoken like a really nice kind person in this moment she's like no way be quiet I'm going with you. And she tells this beautiful tale of how she's going to follow her to death and that may God do ever to her if she doesn't. And it's one of the most beautiful portions of Scripture that we see. Let your people be my people. Your God, my God. Because here Naomi's saying, go back to your gods. Go worship those false things. And Ruth's like, I found out the truth. How dare you send me away? I know who the Lord is now. He's my God, just like he's your God. I don't care if I'm a Moabite. I know the truth. And she uses the name Yahweh. Ruth uses the name Yahweh, which is a vitally important thing for us to capture. She is saying that he is who he says he is. That she is believing in this Yahweh and has already committed her life to him and cannot and will not go back to her old gods. She can't do it because she has believed in who he is. Here we're putting this picture of Ruth and Naomi together and we see that Ruth is responding in faith. Ruth is believing that when they go, it's all going to work out. That somehow something is going to happen. And even if it doesn't, I'll just die with you. I've committed my life to you. I've committed my life to Yahweh. I'm going where you're going. Your people are now going to be my people. I'm sure Naomi's thinking, oh, they're my, they might not be your people. <laughs> but okay, you're determined. It says in that passage, she, was, she saw Ruth's determination and stopped talking. Ruth was so determined that she shut Naomi up. <laughs> I mean, imagine. This, this whole scenario of what was going on, she was so determined and proving to Naomi her dedication to God that Naomi just stopped talking. I said, okay, come on with me. Warren Weersby helps us see this beautiful response of Ruth. And he says, first, she confessed her love for Naomi and her desire to stay with her mother-in-law even unto death. Then she confessed her faith in the true and living God and her desire and decision to worship Him alone. Ruth was steadfastly determined to accompany Naomi and live in Bethlehem with God's covenant people. Ruth's response was one of radical faith. I'm sure that Naomi shared stories of how much the Jews hate the Moabite. I'm sure that Ruth was aware of what she was walking into, the possible rejection, the possible hate that she could receive just for being a Moabite. But she responds in faith. That's a powerful testament to how we are to respond. I love how Block, a commentator, says this. He says, viewed side by side... There is no doubt that the young foreign woman cuts a more impressively noble figure. In the end, the reader-observer is repulsed by Naomi, but is drawn to her Moabite daughter-in-law. And this is important as we walk through the story, because a Moabite woman should never receive what Ruth receives in the end. As we look to her story and we recognize and understand the beauty of God's chesed, God is making a statement with Ruth's story more than we could ever comprehend. It truly is a story of redemption. A story of redemption so high and so big that we can't fathom it. The Hebrew time where we get into their culture and understand, we're going to see that this story should not have transpired. The beauty of where Ruth ends should not have happened. But because God's chesed is available for all people, that is what we find in the story of Ruth. But we are to respond to the BBs of life that shoot at us, the adversity that comes. May we seek to run to our redeemer. Confess our sins. Step away from bitterness and walk in radical faith so that we can respond redemptively. Life is not easy. It never will be. Two things that I think are often promised in life is that we'll get old and bad things will happen. But we can respond redemptively. We can't control what's happening in our lives all around us but we can control through the power of the Spirit how we respond. So may we choose Ruth's response and reject Naomi's. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful, beautiful story that is true. I thank you, God, for the beauty of Ruth's response in this moment of adversity. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll give us the ability to respond redemptively as well where we can enlist the troubles and pains and sorrows of life and redeem them for your good and for your glory. In your name, amen.